want you to imagine that you're here at church by the bridge and it's, it's the time to pray, the corporate prayer time. And let's say Zoe gets up, made up name, Zoe gets up to pray. And we sit there and we think, oh, I know what she'll pray for. She'll pray for BFG leaders and maybe she'll pray for the minister, maybe she'll pray for missionaries, maybe she'll pray for a welcome team, maybe she'll pray for, for music ministry. And occasionally, just occasionally, someone stands up here at church and they pray for something outside of church. You know, the Prime Minister or, or governments or persecuted Christians. But on the whole, our prayers here are, are pretty predictable, aren't they? They're quite parochial, they're quite inward-looking. But then if we stop and we think beyond church by the bridge, we've got, we've got questions, haven't we? It's like, who should we pray for? And what should we pray for? And, and why should we pray for these people? I mean, take the Prime Minister. What should we pray for John Howard? Sure, we pray that he leads this country in a wise way. But why do we pray that? What's at stake if he doesn't lead it in a wise way? Or, or take persecuted Christians in different parts of the world. What do we pray for them? That the persecution stops? That the government changes? That they, they stand firm in the midst of persecution? What about the, the thousands of Muslims who live in our city? Thousands of them. Should we pray for them? What should we pray for them? Why should we pray for them? They're the kind of thing in a grapple with tonight in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Who should we pray for? What should we pray? And why should we pray? See, 1 Timothy 2, the big topic is prayer, especially corporate prayer, praying in the public gathering. And if you weren't here last week, Timothy's been left in a church in Ephesus. He's been left a pastor of this church and he's been told in chapter 1 to silence the false teachers. There are men there who are teaching things that are not leading people to Christ. And so Paul said to Timothy, stop them. They're undermining the gospel of grace. Make sure that people hear the truth so they can be saved. And then here in chapter 2, the subject is prayer. And he tells us who to pray for. And in a way, he puts, he puts a bomb, if you want, under our very narrow view of prayer. And more importantly than that, he tells us why we pray, the motivation to pray. And I pray that, you know, as we look at this passage tonight, I pray that this church would have hearts that long to pray. I pray that we would grasp again the, the glory of the gospel. I pray that we would see the need to pray and we would see the privilege of praying. But most importantly, I pray that we'd actually pray. That we'd be a church that actually prays and prays deeply and prays fervently and prays for all people. Because that's the key word in this section, all. It's there in verse 1. You know, end of verse 1, pray for everyone. It's there in verse 2. Pray for kings and all in authority. It's there in verse 3. Sorry, 4. God wants all people to be saved. It's there in verse 6. He gave himself as a ransom for all men. It's there in verse 7. He's a teacher of the truth based the Gentiles to all people. And right throughout this whole section you, you hear God saying, I'm not just concerned for the individual, I'm concerned for all people. All people of all nations, of all countries, of all tongues. So why don't I pray now that we'd have that same heartbeat as we listen to the word preached tonight. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we thank you and we praise you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, you've reached out to us and you've rescued us. And we thank you that you've given us your word and your spirit. 
And I pray that as I preach tonight, your word, your word will go out powerfully. We pray for a powerful work of the Spirit tonight to, to change us, to feed us, to grow us. Lord, please make us men and women who, who know you, who love you and who long to pray. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to imagine that someone came up to you and they asked the question, uh, what does God want for people? What does God want for people? How are you going to ask that question? Maybe you'll say, oh, God wants all people to be happy. God wants all people to come to church. God wants all people to obey him and follow rules. God wants all people to listen to him. God wants all people to be kind. What does God want? What's the heartbeat of God? Look at verse 4. It's there in verse 4. The heartbeat of God. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That word for men in, in verse 4 is not the male word, it's the mankind word, the people word. God wants all men and women to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heartbeat of God. What, this argument is pretty simple. He says there's one God and there's one mediator and God wants all people to be saved through that mediator. The one God is there in verse 5. For there's one God, there's a unique God, there's only one God. It's Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. God is saying, I'm the unique, only, exclusive God. And you imagine that if you were Israel, you're surrounded by these foreign nations with their polytheistic gods, their they're worshipping a foreign god, the god of the sun and the moon and the stars and fertility and war. And God said, no, no, I'm the only god. There is only one god and that's me. No competitors, no rivals, just me. And you know, I look at Australia, look at Sydney, I just see people worshipping every kind of god there is. Not just the, the hundreds of gods of the Hinduism and not just the, the gods of Buddhism, but, but the gods of self and the gods of career and the gods of possessions. And what is the name? There's one god, Yahweh, the Lord only one God and if there is one God then it means he made you and he made everyone he made everything he made the Muslim he made your neighbour he made the obnoxious worker he made everybody and everybody must worship him and you might be sitting there and say well okay there is one God but I could walk into a mosque and they tell me that why is it that why can't we have one God but many ways to the same God? It's called pluralism. It's, it's attractive, it's popular, it's emotionally very appealing. And the, the Bible says, no, no, there's one God and there's one way to God because there's one mediator, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. One mediator. Back in 2004, I worked for St Thomas's. I, I sat in my office one night, it was a Wednesday night, and there was a couple in front of me, and this couple had been married for 28 years. And they had two grown up kids, both at university, and these, this couple sat there, and they'd lived in the same house under the same roof for years and years and years, and they were not speaking. They couldn't stand the sight of each other. They couldn't hear each other, they couldn't listen to each other, they couldn't talk to each other their whole marriage, if you want, had collapsed. Complete breakdown. And they came to me as, as a mediator. 
And I sat there and I listened to one person and I listened to another person and I sought to mend that relationship. I sought to negotiate, if you want, to mediate between the two parties who couldn't hear each other. And it took months. It took almost a year. But I acted that kind of mediator to bring these two warring parties together. And that's what a mediator does. And the claim here is that Jesus Christ is that mediator between God and men. Verse 5, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul is saying there's a broken relationship between man and God. I don't need to push that, do I? We know there's a broken relationship between man and God. We know that we are not right with God. I mean, have you really loved God with all your whole, the whole heart, mind, soul and strength? Of course you haven't. Have you always told the truth? Of course you haven't. And there's a broken relationship with the Holy God. And the Bible calls you wretched sinners and me wretched sinners and liars and mampies and guilty. And our relationship is broken. We need a mediator. And the Bible says there's not many mediators, not a few different mediators, not a mediator for each religion, not a mediator for each century. There's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, verse 5. Spot that, the man Christ Jesus, the man He's the only God-man, the only one who can represent both sides equally, God and man. The only one in history qualified to mediate. Now how did Jesus mediate? He didn't sit down and listen like I did. How did Jesus mediate? Look at verse 6. He gave himself. Notice that language, he gave himself. He deliberately, voluntarily, self-sacrificially gave himself. He wasn't forced to go to the cross. He gave himself voluntarily as a ransom, verse 6, for all people. A ransom is the price that you pay to release a captive. A ransom is a price that you pay to, to buy someone back. And Jesus paid that price. And what was the price? The price was death. Death on a cross. It's saying God stepped onto this earth in the person of his son to buy us back. Back in World War II, there was a group of uh, British prisoners of war who were in a concentration camp in Burma. And they worked on the railways, and each day they would come to the end of the day, and all their tools would be counted. End of one day, they were counting tools, and there were 300 tools, and they counted 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 297, 298, 299. And one tool was missing. And the Japanese soldier, he went into this rage. He said, who has stolen this tool? Who's stolen it? And no one came forward. And so he pointed his rifle randomly and said, you will all die, you will all die. And one man stepped forward. And he just stood there as the Japanese soldier beat him to death with that rifle. Clubbed him to death. Later that night they went back to count the tools and they counted again, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 297, 298, 299, 300 they just miscounted no tool was missing but one person stepped forward to save the many from dying and that's what Jesus is claiming to do he came as our substitute, as our ransom price he died in my place, in your place we deserve to die, we deserve hell but he's died on our behalf and you may never have understood that before but the cross is actually very simple it is so simple, a swap is taking place he's dying for you He's paying your sin and your guilt on his shoulders. And he's the only way to God. 
think about it, if there was another way, you know, meditation or Muhammad or Mary, why would Jesus die? He's the only mediator. And look at it, it said in verse 6, he did it for who? Verse 6, for all people, for all men. This verse has been analysed and pulled to pieces by biblical scholars throughout the centuries and people are keen to defend what's called limited atonement. That's the idea that, that Jesus just died for the elect, for the limited people. And so they read verse 6 and they say, Jesus paid a ransom price for all of God's elect. Or, or some people say, you know, he, he died for all men, that is all kinds of men, all tribes, all, all nations, all nationalities. That's not what the verse says, is it? He says he died for all men, all people. What he's saying here, listen carefully, is that Jesus' death was sufficient for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in every century, in every country in history. It was sufficient to bring them back to God. In the cross, there's a potential for every person to be saved. Don't mishear me. It's only effective for those who call on the name of Jesus. But no one's beyond salvation. There's no one who Christ didn't die for. We can't look at someone and say, oh, you can't be saved. What does God want? What's the heartbeat of God? Again, verse 4. He wants all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to be saved. Again, tune in. I'm not saying that all people will be saved. I'm not saying all people will be saved. You know, the idea that it doesn't matter how you respond to Jesus, in the end, all people will be saved. That's not what it's saying. I'm not saying that, that God's will is somehow frustrated because all people are clearly not saved. But God's desire, if you want, God's heartbeat is that all people come back to him. Not some, not just a few, but all people. And if you've grasped this, it's crazy, isn't it? We, we, get, we get bogged down in these theological arguments. I mean, why doesn't God save all people? And what about limited time? And why can we say Jesus died for you? And we've missed the point. The point's very simple, that God's desire is that every man, woman, boy and child in every country has come to know him. And you don't need a PhD to work out the maths. One God, one mediator, one way, Jesus Christ. You know, when we talk about Jesus, when we, when we share our faith, see, I fear we get so bogged down with the idea that there's a narrow way, and we must talk about a narrow way, that we just lose sight of the glory of, of one God and one way. We must talk about Jesus, but we must talk about the joy and the glory of the gospel. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus. And it means that you can't write anyone off. You know, we can't narrow our evangelism to a particular demographic. We can't decide who we should and shouldn't tell the gospel to. That's what the false teachers were doing with their special knowledge and their elitism. And what does Paul say down in verse 7? He said, I'm a herald, I'm announcing the good news, I'm an apostle, I've seen Jesus Christ, and I'm a teacher of the true faith to all the Gentiles, to all people. So let me ask you, who do you speak to Christ about? Who do you talk to about Lord Jesus Christ? You know, the person who sits next to you at work every day, do you talk about Jesus? Because God may want them to be saved the person that serves your coffee every morning, the long black every morning, do you talk to them about Christ? Or the person that you do sport with, or university friends, or, or family, or you know, the person in Greenway, God wants them to be saved. And the person with a multi-million dollar waterfront view, God wants them to be saved. 
And I reckon that if we grasp more of the heartbeat of God, that his desires are all people are saved, and somehow we'd speak. A number of years ago, the, the president of the Atheist Society in the UK said this to a Christian friend. An atheist talking to a Christian friend, he says this, If I believe what you believe, if I believe that Jesus was the only way to God, if I believe that only Jesus can bring forgiveness, if I believe that only Jesus could bring peace with God, if I believe that only Jesus could bring eternal life through faith in him, if I believe that, then I'd be willing to crawl over broken glass to tell other people. So why don't we talk about Jesus? Is it because we don't think there's only one God? We think there are many gods? Is it because deep down we, we long for lots of different meters, lots of way to gods? Or is it just that we haven't grasped the heartbeat of God that we long to share Jesus because God wants all people to be saved? That's my first point. God wants all people to be saved. But the point of this passage, friends, is not that we preach. It's not just that we talk about it, but we pray. That's the focus of these verses. It's on prayer. Not preaching, but praying. And the flow goes something like this. You know, God longs for all people to be saved and your responsibility is to pray. And to pray urgently, to pray fervently. My second point, God wants us to pray for all people. Look at verse 1. I urge them, I'm pleading with you. First of all, as a priority in your church meetings, when you gather together, what do you do? Verse 1. That requests, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for who? For all people. He's saying in light of everything I've talked about, in light of the false teachers, in light of the gospel, just pray. Pray, pray, pray. What kind of prayers? All kinds of prayers. Verse 1. Requests, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. Don't get bogged down in what the difference is. He's saying, you'll pray different prayers for different people. But who should you pray for? Who should you pray for? Who should be in your prayer list? Verse 1. All people. It's funny, isn't it? We meet so many different people every week, don't we? Here's a stat for you. In the 21st century, you meet more people in a week there's someone who lived a hundred years ago and met in a lifetime. We meet so many people. Who should we pray for? And Paul's answer is everyone. You know, pray for the false teachers of chapter 1. Pray for your church leaders. Pray for all authority. Don't limit your prayers. Pray for all people. Go back to the few I talked about before. Pray for the person who sits next to you every day. Pray for the person who, who serves your coffee every day. Pray for the person you play sport with. Pray for your family members. Pray for the people in Greenway. Pray, pray for the people with the, the multi-million dollar water companies. Pray for them. Lift their, their names up. Lift them to God in prayer. Because God wants all people to be saved and your job is to pray. And surely that rebukes our, our narrow prayers here in church. It, it rebukes our parochialism in our prayer lives. You know, when you get to pray here at church, we shouldn't just be praying for our needs, but for God's world. Because he longs for all people to be saved. John Piper says this don't let your prayers be limited to any one group of people or kind of people enlarge you, the circumference of your love don't be provincial or sectarian or nationalistic or elitist or racist in your prayers let your prayers embrace all kinds of people, high and low, white and black liberal and labour he's saying enlarge your heart until it embraces the whole world now what did Jesus say? Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and what? And pray for those who persecute you. 
or put another way saying there's, there's no group of people where you can say, oh, I don't pray for them. I want to urge us as a church to pray fervently. Dwell on that heartbeat of God and when you think about that Muslim community, you pray for them. And when you think about the Hindus, you pray for them. And when you think about the persecuted Christian, you pray for them. And you think of the person at work, you pray for them. And you intercede for them. Your heart yearns for them because your heartbeat is in line with God's heartbeat. And then you pray for the false teachers who are destroying the faith of some because God wants people to be saved. And then you pray for the leaders and governments and kings because Paul almost, he, he separates them out. He makes them specifically in verse 2. For everyone, verse 1, but especially for kings and all in authority, verse 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. He's saying pray for kings, pray for the rulers. The amazing thing was, friends, that when Paul wrote this letter, when Paul wrote this letter, there wasn't a, there wasn't a single Christian person in leadership or authority. There wasn't a Christian king. You know, the Book of Common Prayer says, pray for all Christian kings. And the Bible says, no, no, pray for all kings and all rulers. Enlarge your vision. Pray for the, even the kings who are despotic, murdering people like Emperor Nero, who, who, who murder the Christians. Pray for them. Now, why do we pray for our leaders particularly? We've got to grasp what the Bible teaches about authorities and governments. According to the Bible, the role of the government is to, to preserve the law, to promote peace, to punish evil, and to do good. Romans 30, that's the role of the government. Preserve the law, promote peace, punish evil, and do good. And Paul says, you pray for those people in authority so they would do their job, so those two, that you may lead peaceful and quiet lives he's, he's not saying that you have an easy life a trouble-free life he's saying I want a peaceful life for you guys why? so the gospel can go out verse 3 in all holiness and godliness or literally in all holiness and proper conduct he's saying pray for your leaders so you can live in a place in a way where the gospel goes out and people can be saved so you must pray for the salvation of leaders you must pray for our, our government to be saved but we also pray for them because it's almost like God is saying look for you, if you want your prayers to do the most good for the greatest number of people pray for the people who lead you and it's through the state and through the government that the gospel will either go out or be impeded so pray for your governments don't just criticise leaders don't just criticise governments don't ridicule them pray for them I find, I find prayer really hard I find prayer really really hard one way I pray is I've got a I've got a, a, a photo album of people I pray for regularly I flick through the photo album and I do that because when I see a picture of somebody it helps me to pray for them and I reckon one of the reasons we don't pray for leaders and, and governments and authorities is we can't see them and we don't know them and Paul is saying sure you don't know them but God knows them and God's desire for them is they're saved. So pray. Pray that God would save them. Pray that God would bring them to the truth. Pray that God would bring his purpose about through them. You know, when Clement of Rome was praying, way back, way back in time, he prayed this for rulers and authorities. Grant them, Lord, health, peace, harmony and stability so that they may give no offence in administering the government you have given them. Or to tell you in AD 200 prayed this, we pray for emperors, for their ministers and those in power, that their reign may continue 
and the state may be at peace so the gospel may go out you know when the queen was crowned queen in 1952 a great day in her first Christmas day speech her first Christmas day speech she pleaded with the nation to pray for her and in those months leading up to her coronation every day the daily newspaper would print prayers and they'd print prayers for the whole of the UK to pray for the queen and the nation prayed the nation prayed for their sovereign leader the queen and I just wonder whether if we really prayed for our government and we really prayed for those who lead over us we might see the gospel guide I'm urging us to pray pray for your Prime Minister John Howard pray for your local government pray for Maurice Yemo I mean, do you know who your leaders are? your mayor and your local MPs? find out and pray for them and pray for leaders throughout the world so you know I think of a country like Zimbabwe a country there where there's civil unrest and where Christians are persecuted and the church isn't allowed to operate freely. We need to pray for Robert Mugabe. We must pray either for him to be changed or to be removed. Because we want the gospel to go out and for all people to be saved. And we pray with thanksgiving for leaders in China where the gospel is going out even despite the leaders there. I don't know whether you've seen the film Hotel Rwanda. It's a pretty harrowing film. It's about the genocide ten years ago in that country where there were, ten, there were one million people slaughtered. And the church struggled, missionaries left, and people prayed. People prayed, and ten years later, they're a Christian president, prime minister, and a church that's growing because people prayed for their leaders. So when we hear of, you know, as I heard last year, of, of, of local governments banning the Gideon Bibles from hospitals in the UK, we pray. We don't just petition, we don't just win battles, we pray. Why do we pray? So the gospel would go out. John Stott wrote this. Sometimes wonder whether the comparatively slow progress towards peace and justice in this world and towards world evangelization is due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. What might not happen if God's people throughout the world learn to wait upon him in believing, persevering prayer? See, God urges us to pray because his heartbeat is for people to be saved. And as I close, let me just say, I'm very concerned. You know, I meet with people regularly. And time and time and time and time again, I hear people say, I struggle to pray. We all struggle to pray. And I'm concerned that when we gather together publicly for our prayer, not, not just low attendance, but we're very narrow in what we pray for. And that, I take responsibility for that partly. We've got to expand our horizons think big, think the heartbeat of God he wants all people to be saved, so pray now how will we change things, how will you pray differently and I pray differently, it's not about listing more people to pray for it's about understanding the heartbeat of God, when you've grasped, that he's not just concerned for Sydney and not just concerned for Brisbane, but he's concerned for all people of all nations and he longs for them to be saved and he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for them when you've grasped that it's the gospel that changes your prayer life. Not things, not lists, not structures. The gospel changes you. And I'm praying that we as a church would have that heartbeat of God that longs for every man, woman, boy and girl in this city, in this nation, in this country, in this world to be saved. We wouldn't just preach, but we'd pray fervently, regularly for all people with all kinds of prayers.
Father, I thank you for that great truth. There's one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he willingly sacrificed himself for us and for all people. Lord, I praise you that you want all people to be saved. And Father, forgive us for our narrow-mindedness. Forgive us, Father, for the way that we limit who we talk to or who we pray for. Lord, I pray the gospel would shape the content of our prayers and the gospel would shape the people who we pray for and the gospel would shape the urgency of our prayers and that that gospel would shape everything that we pray for and everything that we do. So please make us a people and a church with such a big vision of, of, of what you want to do in this land and what you want to do in this world that you make us prayers with all kinds of prayers always pointing people to Christ I ask that for his name's sake